Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. John, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Well, my name is John Mancino. I reside in California. I uh, lived here my whole life um, and uh, spent 30 years in manufacturing management. Uh, for the last dozens or so years, I've owned a private security company. And uh, I just... Uh, Everything I'm passionate about, I go after. It's just been my nature since I was uh, in sixth grade, believe it or not. Um, went after music, after seeing the Beatles with my good friend, Doug Smith. We played music all over California, even played at Greek theater a couple of times. And, um, and I became interested in the JFK assassination because Kennedy had driven by our school in Los Angeles uh, in, uh, in during the 1960 presidential election. And the day that he was assassinated, um, they let us go home from school early. All my friends wanted to go out and play ball. I said, no, I'm going to watch TV. They said, you can watch TV. What for? I said, I'm watching the news. So here I am. I'm in six, just in sixth grade. You know, so I'm like pretty young. And um, so I wound up sitting in front of the TV glued to it until our parents made us kids go to bed and then they went to their room and I sneaked up and started to watch the news again and watched them parade Lee Harvey Oswald out for the first time uh, before the press. And I thought, even as a young guy, this guy looks awfully calm and cool and collected and, uh, and confident and was very defiant in terms of shooting anyone and uh, said so. Um, so I thought this doesn't, doesn't register properly. So anyway, uh, even the chief of police who I met years later, Jesse Curry, uh, initially indicated to the press that we have our man. And I can tell you, that's not how he felt in the uh, early to mid seventies. So I, uh, wound up, um, reading everything I could get my hands on. Literally everything I could get my hands on. The first book was Mark Lane's book, Rush to Judgment. But uh, I wound up uh, years later in the 70s, long after meeting Marguerite Oswald and Jesse Curry, uh, hooked up with David Lifton, who wrote the book Best Evidence. And that, that book was the first book to ever publish JFK's autopsy photos, which were clearly different showed the difference between what the Dallas doctors who tried to save Kennedy and what the Bethesda doctors who performed the autopsy showed uh, where the wounds were. So uh, I was I was really stunned. Um, and to his dying day, Dr. McClellan, who was at Parkland Hospital, refused to change his testimony and uh, stuck to his feeling that President Kennedy was shot in the throat from the front. So all these things were very interesting to me. I wound up um, meeting a guy because of my relationship with Marguerite Oswald. Uh, the news, a newspaper article uh, on that relationship produced a guy who somehow got my office number. I met with him and he wound up uh, admitting that he worked with two guys in the CIA during Operation Mongoose, which was a CIA back plot to kill Castro. 
when that was terminated by Robert Kennedy, uh, they those guys turned their sights on President Kennedy, not the guy I, the guy that I met. He backed out, and quite frankly, he lived in more states than I can recall, staying away from the other two guys. So this is how I got involved, and it wound up evolving uh, from that relationship all the way to Attorney General Ed Meese under Ronald Reagan, uh, who told Baxter Ward, who had been the ABC News Director on the West Coast before becoming an LA County Supervisor for a couple of terms and then went back to ABC and did commentaries. And Baxter Ward took information I provided and this other individual provided by the name of Dick Margison, who was also investigated by the Warren Commission investigators and the FBI and the CIA and took that information to Ed Meese and Ed Meese came back and said, I wouldn't touch this with a 10 foot pole. Too many people are dead. So at that point, I backed out of it. Um, and I spent most of my time working, the area, working in the area of criminal justice, trying to make sure that life inmates who had once, by the way, been sentenced to death, uh, but having the uh, California Supreme Court twice in the 70s overturned the death penalty, and there was no such thing at the time as life without the possibility of parole, except for train, rock, uh, train wrecking. Um, so you could commit murder, rape, child molestation, and never be executed. Um, so I focused my attention on that, and I got involved uh, with petition drives. What happened was the old Los Angeles Herald Examiner had an area column, and it was just brief stories. And I noticed one that said, uh, talked about the pending parole of Sirhan Sirhan, convicted assassin of Robert F. Kennedy. And I said, this doesn't ring true. Uh, talking to my friend, Mike Groff, we worked together. So I called the parole board and found out that Sirhan Sirhan had been granted a release date in his very first parole hearing. They wanted him out of the country. So I drafted a petition and four of our friends uh, gathered together on college campuses after work and on shopping malls on the weekends for a, about a month and collected uh, 12,000 signatures and hundreds of letters, went to the parole board, became good friends with the then vice chairman, Robert Roos, and Bob and I became lifelong friends until he passed away a little more than a year ago. Um, and he eventually became the chairman of the parole board. So I was the first private citizen allowed to uh, testify about in, in favor of a rescission hearing to take away that parole date uh, because Sirhan was scheduled to be released on September 1st, 1984, and could have been released earlier if he was uh, if more good time credits were applied to his case. So, um, went back, this was in September of 1981, went back in November of 1981, testified along with Deputy DA Larry Trapp of Los Angeles and Sir Han's attorneys, Luke McKissick. And uh, of course, McKissick was trying to keep uh, Sir Han's parole date intact and we testified against that release. The board overwhelmingly ruled to hold a rescission hearing in April of 82. I was the first private citizen allowed to attend a uh, parole rescission hearing for a life inmate. So after about a week, the board uh, through testimony and uh, completing, they took away Sirhan's parole date. 
Um, and so we were successful in our effort but at that time. However, um, Solano County Superior Court Judge Ellis Randall ruled later on that public outcry, which was our petition drive and letter drive, could not be the sole reason to rescind the parole date. So uh, he ruled that that Powell uh, in the Sirhan, excuse me, in the uh, Onionfield case, uh, where we also gathered petitions with the daughter of the slain police officer, Valerie Campbell. You probably might recall that uh, Ian Campbell, LA County uh, police officer, uh, was shot to death uh, in the infamous Onionfield in Bakersfield. So we wound up uh, drafting a petition, submitted 31,500 signatures to the parole board, and the parole board came back uh, and rescinded the parole date. But um, Solano County Superior Court Judge Ellis Randall ruled that our public outcry was not a, a sufficient reason to take away a parole date. So we wound up going to the First District Court of Appeals in San Francisco. We won there. And eventually we won at the California Supreme Court level and Gregory Ulyss Powell wound up dying in prison. With all this publicity between the Sirahan case and the Onionfield case garnered the attention of Doris Tate, the mother of slain actress Sharon Tate, who called me in the middle of the night one night because somebody had submitted 900 signatures to have Leslie Van Houten released who, by the way, just a week and a half ago, was released um, from prison. Uh, originally sentenced to death, then sentenced to life in prison, and now is out on the streets. Um, so when Doris Tate came to me, we drafted a petition. Over the course of the next couple of years, we gathered over 1.4 million signatures uh, to keep all of the Manson family in prison. Uh, we attended parole hearings. Doris testified. Uh, then following Doris's passing, her daughter, Patty, took the mantle. When Patty passed away from cancer, then Deborah Tate, who was a longtime friend of mine, she took up the, the mantle herself and has worked not only to keep the Manson family in prison, but also other lesser known, less publicity generating cases of murders that uh, had long histories of violent crime. Uh, starting at very young ages. So it's just, I learned from a discussion I had with the former chief counsel for the parole board in California that the public can have an effect in this area of their government if they stand up and say something, get off their couches, write a letter, sign a petition, call their legislator and say, this is, this is ridiculous. This, you know, th these laws don't say what they mean. Um, and I wound up um, researching life in prison because in 1978, we finally had life without the possibility of parole for crimes other than train wrecking. However, if you read the law, the governor and or the state, the Supreme, state Supreme Court can commute those sentences to life with the possibility of parole. So I went to George Duke Majin, who was the governor of California at the time, and I, I wound up drafting a state constitutional amendment to remove that authority from the governor. Couldn't touch the Supreme Court, but I was able to draft a, a state constitutional amendment to have the governor's power 
taken away to reduce those sentences to life with the possibility of parole. His legal affairs secretary, Vance Ray, called me and I went to Sacramento. And I, when I was asked why I drafted this, I said, it's very simple. The state constitution and the federal constitution, they forbid ambiguity in the law. And if life without parole doesn't mean life without parole, I don't know what's more ambiguous. So um, Duke Majin and Vance Ray said, you walk these halls and you get a legislature, uh, legislator in both houses of the legislature to introduce such a bill, uh, will publicly endorse this, this, this uh, constitutional amendment. So I went to State Senator Robert Presley, who was fairly liberal, liberal on most issues, but not on criminal justice issues. He was very staunchly against uh, the release of life uh, inmates, murderers, rapists, child molesters. So he agreed to introduce a bill. Willie Brown, who was the Speaker of the Assembly at the time, would not allow a single Assembly person to sign on to that bill. So it wound up in the trash can. Um, and so we just continued our efforts to push for other pieces of legislation to, uh, to beef up criminal justice. We worked on the Victims' Bill of Rights, Prop 8 in 1982, Prop 4, which was a bail initiative to deny bail to, to uh, capital murder, uh, murder uh, cases. And, uh, and just we were successful in passing some laws, uh, pushing the legislature to get more involved with criminal justice and protect the public. Because no matter what issue you're talking about, in politics, uh, energy, the economy in general, um, public safety is paramount. Government's most important function is that of protecting its citizens. And I can tell you, uh, they're not doing a very good job. In 1952, which was the year I was born, there were 260 murders in the whole state of California. The year I got involved, there were 3,411. That's a more than 1,300% increase in homicides in this state. Well, we all know that our population from 1952 to 1980 did not go up more than 1,300%. It's outrageous, and the public doesn't know what's going on, uh, and people become victims every single day in this country, and it's outrageous. The government is not performing its most important function. You mentioned a lot of things, but I want to bring it back to some of the first things you mentioned. I'm sure we'll have to we'll have to do other episodes on RFK and all that as well, too. But I want to talk about some of the JFK stuff, because that is something I've, for the past year I've been just passionate about and very focused into. But you said you met Jesse Curry. You got to tell me how that occurred, man, and that he had different thoughts in his mid-70s of Oswald. Was yeah, it's interesting because he, I found him. I was a little bit nervous about meeting with him. Uh, he had published uh, his own book. It wasn't it wasn't a very um, long book, but he had some pretty pertinent information about JFK's uh, assassination. So I just called him up and I, I said, look, I'm a freelance writer. I just want to interview you. Um, I'll respect your wishes. We'll do it however you want. So he invited me to Dallas. We sat on his patio at a nice little table on the patio, and I tape recorded the interview. And I finally got down to the question. I said, I know initially you, you thought you, quote, unquote, had your man, but I'd like to know now, after all this additional information uh, has come out over the years, and again, this is in the early to mid-70s when this inter interview took place, do you still feel the same? 
do you believe Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated President Kennedy? And the, the words left his lips were basically, turn off your tape recorder. So um, I took a deep breath. I, I respected his wishes. I did what he asked. I turned my tape recorder off and he said, I thought he did until he sat in on a couple of interrogations, one in which Oswald said to the detective, I was on the first floor. I had been in the lunchroom and then walked out toward the front of the building. But there were two African-American ladies in the lunchroom at the same time. This is at the time of the shooting. So a couple hours later, they went back to interrogate Oswald again. And Jesse Curry stood in uh, and just he just leaned against the door and with his hands behind his back and just listened to the interrogation. And the detective said, we talked to those two ladies and they don't recall seeing you in the lunchroom. At that moment, Curry said that Oswald stood up, leaned over the table between separating him and the detective and said, how did I know they were in there unless I was there? Because nobody else except the building manager, Roy Truly, was in the building. Everybody was outside watching the parade. So at that moment, Jesse Curry said he finally had doubts, but he never shared them. In fact, he refused to let me turn my tape recorder back on because, of course, I was going to follow up and say, what changed your mind? And when did this happen? And, you know, these questions that he just answered, I was going to ask and ask for him to answer them on tape, which he refused to do. Did he ever express why he couldn't talk about it on tape? Well, first of all, probably I'm, I'm assuming, again, I'm a young guy at this time, um, barely in my early 20s. And, uh, and I think he had a reputation he wanted to protect. He had a family he wanted to protect. By this time, a lot of people had been killed. A lot of people died. In fact, if, if you ever saw the movie Executive Action with Robert Ryan, Will Gear, and uh, Burt Lancaster about the assassination that was released in 1973, um, at the end of that movie, while the credits are rolling up the screen, uh, there's a narrator, narrator who says that uh, an un, a London uh, Sunday Times actuary indicated that 18 material witnesses involved directly or indirectly with the assassination of President Kennedy, all being dead, the odds of them all being dead by January 1967 were 100,000 trillion to one. So I have to assume that that also may have played a role. I mean, one of the officers uh, that was in the parade, he, he was killed. Uh, people died from all kinds of crazy things, karate chops, uh, induced heart attacks. People had been in perfect health. Um, so, I mean, I can't put words into his mouth. I can just only speculate, to be frankly honest. Um, I, I just don't think he wanted to get any more involved. Uh, and I was really, frankly, surprised he let me interview him. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Did I mean, is that rare for him i'm curious because like ruth Payne does interviews all the time but i would think for a lot of these people it gets really hard rehashing the same things over and over again and i do believe conspiracy but you know there is some super super conspiracies out there that are like that's a little bit too much for me like jack ruby didn't shoot oswald is one that i've 
come across a couple of times. So I would think he'd be exhausted just to want to interview. It's uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, you know, there are a lot of publicity seekers out there. And, you know, in all my research, um, the, the single biggest turning point for me wasn't due to my intelligence and my, you know, my tough research. It fell in my lap. And it was because of the newspaper article on my relationship with Marguerite Oswald, Lee's mother. Um, this guy contacted me uh, because he read the article. And from that point forward, I learned a lot more than I'd ever thought I might learn uh, to my dying day. Um, and as a result, I'm fairly certain that uh, that uh, the truth may never truly all come out. But I, I can tell you this without the slightest hesitation, that Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with the assassination of President Kennedy. And not only that, he wasn't even involved at all, much less behind the rifle, and was set up. And he may have been set up all the way back to the very late 50s, early 60s. If you recall, Kennedy was not supposed to be elected. Um, everybody assumed that Nixon, you know, the vice president, was going to be elected. And I think it threw a wrench in things. And the CIA was involved in numerous activities that Kennedy wasn't made aware of until it was too late. For example, the Bay of Pigs. Um, and two of the individuals that were in a photograph uh, after I met with Dick Margitson, um with a friend of mine, two people were in a photograph down in those Florida Keys that had no business being in the same photograph together. Not whatsoever, had no business being in the same photograph. Uh, one was a guy that offered Oswald as the patsy, and the other one was the guy who accepted him as the patsy. and began to set Oswald up. I mean, he was a perfect patsy, gone to the Soviet Union, uh, tried to renounce his American citizenship, but he was sent by the CIA, in my opinion, was sent to the C by the CIA to the Soviet Union to determine whether a private citizen could infiltrate the Soviet Union uh, when, it, when it finally looked like he wasn't going to be successful. He was allowed to bring his Russian-born wife, Marina, back to the United States, paid for by the feds, the State Department. Uh, so it, it, was, uh, it was a very convoluted case that started way back. Um, as I said, Kennedy was not supposed to be elected. Could I ask about uh, your relationship with Marguerite Oswald? You got to explain to me what she was like. I just see photos and videos of her and I'm like, I'm curious because that relationship, they always say like Oswald didn't like his mother and all this. I'm just curious what she had to say. Well, it's kind of interesting. I had seen an article in the old National Enquirer uh, where this guy interviewed her and uh, he was not very kind to her. So I tracked her down called her up, told her that I didn't believe her son assassinated the president and asked if I could interview her. So I flew to Dallas. I, I arrived in Dallas um, and wound up getting a motel room. Again, I'm in, I think I was maybe 22 years old, something like that. I can't remember exactly. So, uh, so I set up an interview. Next morning, I called her up and said, I'm gonna, getting ready to drive to Fort Worth. And she changed her mind. So 
I must have spent 45 minutes or now I can't remember exactly, but I spent a long time convincing her to let me go ahead and come over and interview her. So I did. Within 15, 20 minutes, less than a half an hour, we were like friends. I mean, she was startled and surprised that uh, I was, um, first of all, on her side and in terms of not believing that Lee had anything to do with Kennedy's assassination, but also because um, she felt more comfortable that I wasn't there to take advantage of her or like like other uh, writers had and people that had interviewed her. Um, I found her to be a warm individual, sad. Um, I mean, I can't count the number of times that she'd break out in tears and not just because of the loss of her son, but she lost her job, fired from her job, which couldn't happen today. She was a registered nurse. They couldn't, with the, the labor laws that are on the books today, she couldn't be fired over that. Uh, but lost friends, lost family. Um, Lee's older brother, Robert, who was a strange guy, um, didn't like him. He didn't like me. Um, but he did not defend his brother to his own mother um, and uh, and never got to see Marina, her daughter, daughter-in-law, and uh, Lee's children, June Lee and Rachel. and. Uh, Pretty lonely life. I uh, had to retire on a mere pittance of Social Security. I can't remember where it was, but I mean, you could never survive on it. That's for sure. And consequently, she, uh, I took her out to lunch. Uh, first time I met her, and she was, she had one favorite restaurant, and it was it was Long John Silver's. She loved fish and chips, so so I took her to Long John Silver's, and um, she just. It was like she she couldn't believe that somebody would go out of their way because of how she'd been mistreated in the past by reporters and writers and novelists and stuff. Uh, so she couldn't believe that uh, somebody would go out of their way to actually, <coughs> excuse me, um, be kind to her. It was, uh, and she was a little on edge from time to time. She would, um, let's say, uh, hold back things. But eventually, we became very good friends. Um, later on, years later, when the House Select Committee on Assassinations uh, began their work and began to um, hold public hearings on television, she would call me every other day and say, uh, they're wrong about this, or, oh, this was a good day. You know, this is a good day for us. And it was, it was really interesting. And one day, she had, excuse me, my throat is dry. Hold on one second. One day, she had misplaced my phone number. Well, my dad's name is John also. He was John Joseph, and I'm John Dennis. So she looked it up through information. She called my dad. She starts ranting and raving about the the committee hearings that day. And um, my father said, oh, my God, he must be Marguerite Oswald. And she said, yes, he want my son. So she, he gave her my number. But it was, I found her to be very warm uh, in spite of the way she had to live after the assassination. Um, she was very, lived a very lonely life, sad life. Um, excuse me, got sinus trouble today from all the pollen. But anyway, I found her to be very nice, uh, very sweet, nothing like what the press painted her as. Uh, she's very intelligent. She knew things that I didn't know, shared things with me that I didn't know about. 
even documents. Um, one particular state document, she would not give me a copy of, but state document that inferred that Lee was intelligence. And so um, she also shared me with me her conversation with Lee at the jail that night after the assassination took place. And by the way, um, I shared that with David Lifton, who had written the book Best Evidence, which uh, was the first time the autopsy photos were published, the autopsy photos of JFK. Um, and in that conversation, she said, Lee, I found a document. Are you Office of Naval Intelligence? You CIA? What's going on here? And he kept telling her, Mom, everything's going to be okay. Leave it alone. Everything's going to be fine. Just give it a couple of days. I'm going to get my attorney, tell him exactly what to, to look for, where to find it. And this is all going to be over. Just leave it alone. So I share that with David Lifton, and then David Lifton put it in his sequel, which I have no idea where it's at because David, um, last time I talked to him was not long before he passed away. Yeah, I talked to him too. Last, yeah, last December. And uh, I didn't know he had passed away. I was actually trying to find him because I didn't get an answer to my last email or phone call. And uh, his phone stayed on for a while. Um, but Anyway, uh, I shared that information with him, and God only knows where his files are. He had asked me if I would take control. Uh, I don't know if he was feeling ill or what, but he asked me to take control of his files that were not far from where I currently live in Orange County, California, uh, in a storage unit. And at the time I was moving, I, uh, I, I couldn't do it at the time. So I said, let me get back to you when I get settled. And then I never heard back from him. I thought this is strange. So after um, after settling in where I'm at now, and I have a, had a couple new clients that I had to take care of, I tried to reach him and couldn't couldn't find him, and then learned he passed away. Yeah, Matt DeHitt has um I think a lot of J David Lifton's files and stuff he was working on. Matt DeHitt, I can send you his info if you want. Please do, please do, because um, that information that I gave him alone is valuable. Um, not only what I just shared, but also the, the Jesse Curry information. And David was shocked by that. Um, you know, he was disturbed as well that Jesse Curry would not go on record saying the same things that he said to me off record. Because, um, you know, when they, you've got the chief of police contradicting what he initially said, I mean, vehemently, um, he was con completely puzzled. And I said, well, you know, if you look at the photograph that was taken through the front windshield was Kennedy's arms are raising up to his throat. Um, uh, you can look through that car windshield and you can see a guy standing in the doorway of the Texas School Book Depository in the identical clothes that Lee Harvey Oswald wrote, uh, wore those that day. So uh, it's... Um, so that was puzzling to Jesse Curry as well. Uh, but again, he, I, again, I don't know if it was because of his reputation or because of the number of people who were killed, prominent people directly and indirectly connected to the assassination were gone. And, um, you know, plus he had a wife and family. I, I mean, I can't speak for him. Plus he's gone now. And if he were still here, he still wouldn't change his story. He would not 
go on record with these feelings that he had. So um, I, I'm convinced that that was Lee in that doorway of the Texas School Book Depository. And, uh, and I, I believe that Oswald told the truth uh, to the detective in front of Jesse Curry when he said he was on the first floor at the time of the shooting and, uh, and was found calmly drinking uh, halfway done with a Coke uh, on the second floor in the lunchroom by building manager Roy Truly and the police officer that had gone up the front steps of the Texas School Depository. And in less than 90 seconds after the last bullet was fired. So Oswald would have had, if he'd been in that six floor window, would have had to hide the rifle so it took some time to find, cross the building, go down four flights of stairs because the elevator was still stuck on the sixth floor, run down four flights of stairs, bust into the lunchroom on the second floor and buy a Coke and be halfway done with it, calmly drinking it in less than 90 seconds after the last bullet was fired. Impossible. The FBI couldn't do it. The Warren Commission investigators couldn't do it. And Oswald couldn't do it and didn't do it. About Margaret's um, research on her own, did she ever research at all on her own? I mean, you, you mentioned that she called you about the HSCA investigation and said they got some things wrong. She Yeah, she did. Um, she did her best. She wasn't given very much cooperation, of course. I mean, it wasn't in the narrative at the time. But she uh, she contacted the State Department. She contacted the Warren Commission investigators. She even contacted the FBI. Um, Ida wasn't privy to those uh, conversations again because I was um, I hadn't met her yet. Um, but she was very thorough and completely different from what the press painted her as. I found her to be very warm, kind, generous, and uh, to be completely broke <laughs> all the time and be as generous as she was and intelligent uh, was just the opposite of what she was painted as being. Um, and, you know, there were reports that she didn't get along with Marina. I'll tell you, I, every, not one conversation that I ever had with Marguerite did she not have anything but nice things to say about Marina. Missed her, missed the grandkids. Um, it, it really tore her up inside. Uh, in fact, she had less nice things to say about her own son, Robert, uh, because of Robert's attitude about Lee um, than she did Marina or anyone else for that matter, um, certainly the grandkids. But um, yeah, it, it, and I, I understood after she passed away, she had a note, written a note that if she were to pass away, all of her files were to come to me. So when she passed away um, in early 1981, I contacted uh, Lee's brother, Robert, and he was very rude. He said, I know who you are, um, and uh, you're not getting anything. I said, you found the note that your mom wrote? Yes, but you're not getting anything. Lee did it, and that's, that's it. Um, so I, I hung up. He was very unreasonable. I think I, I always got the impression that Robert was jealous of Lee, not because of the attention he got, but because it was obvious to anybody that ever watched Lee be interviewed that he was intelligent and that there could have been something to the um, theory that he had been involved in intelligence work for the United States.
it's weird that his brother had that reaction though i mean i know his brother to his dying day said lee did it i've read read that in documents but i don't know it's just there's something there like a either it's a fear aspect or something like that that's the reason why you would double down on your brother not even look into the possibility of conspiracy unless he did it in secret and i've heard stories i think the last time lee stayed over there briefly for like a little bit of time or something like that with marina when he came back from russia it's the work of gary hill and his book the other oswald and there was a knife incident whether he pulled a knife out people said like the, the accounts vary so I don't know what that I mean brothers fight I have a brother but just to be that so hostile towards it even like not giving you any files that's Marguerite's just because you're interested in the more conspiracy aspect yeah and you know there's been all kinds of conspiracies you know some of the most outrageous things I've ever heard in my life I mean you know people trying to make a buck trying to get publicity you know it, it's it's really pathetic, and it doesn't do anybody any justice, certainly doesn't do justice to the case. Um, but I just really think it was that it was embedded in his jealousy of Lee. I mean, I couldn't attribute to any, I couldn't come up with anything else to attribute it to. Um, but, but he, you know, Marguerite had told me that Robert was jealous of Lee long before the assassination even occurred. So yeah, it wasn't a surprise to me the way he talked with me on the phone. Uh, and I only had that one conversation with him. But he was very arrogant, very short, um, not very sweet, but he was short. And, uh, you know, he right away said, I know who you are and you're not getting anything. And so uh, I said, well, if you don't want to give it to me, give it to me, give it to the public through me. Um, he said, no, Lee did it, and you guys got to leave this thing alone. Um, and I thought, this is pretty strange behavior for a so-called beloved brother. Yeah. Did you ever ask Margaret about either Mark Lane um, or Ruth Payne at all? Because she fired Mark Lane from representing. Yeah. I think, I think that she um, felt betrayed by Mark Lane. Uh long after they'd begun, you know, he became Lee's uh, surrogate attorney in death. Um, and, but she got, she got nervous. Um, she thought that he was more interested in getting a book published than he was actually trying to help her clear Lee's name. And Mark Lane wasn't the only one who took advantage of her in that regard. So she developed a, a very leery uh, approach to anybody uh, that tried to interview her and discuss things with her, feeling that they were just going to take advantage of her and that they were more concerned about getting publicity for themselves, whether they were going to write a book or do a television interview, radio interview, newspaper article, just more interested in that than helping her clear Lee's name. She didn't believe in their sincerity after a while, and that's sort of what happened with the relationship with Mark Lane. And you mentioned somebody else? Um, um, Ruth Payne. Pardon me? Ruth Payne. Um, you know, I. she never really said anything uh, derogatory about Ruth Payne, just that she didn't think she helped Lee and thought that she would show more kindness in that regard. But that's the extent. She didn't really go into any much any detail. One thing I learned about Marguerite, because she was so 
on guard all the time because of being mistreated and misquoted, misquoted. And I think that was part of the narrative, making her look like she was some kind of a nut that belonged to Bellevue. But uh, she became leery of people and she was always on guard. So I didn't, if I got the sense that she was going to, she was kind of backing off, I didn't pressure her. I let her dictate the narrative. Um, the, when I did have something to say, I would say so um, with, in a respectful way. And, you know, 99% of the time, she was very receptive. So because I've done a lot of research myself and seen things that people today have never seen. So like that photograph in the floor of the keys, for example. And, um, you know, the, to, um, to learn 99.9% uh, certainty who actually was behind that stockade fence is pretty powerful. And that's when I went to Baxter Ward, the old, old LA County Supervisor, former Director of News on the ABC's West Coast Division, uh, had gone to Ed Meese, the Attorney General under Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan. And um, I, when, when Ed Meese says, I'm not touching with a 10-foot pole, I'm not carrying this any further myself. I had a month old, a couple month old uh, son. And, um, and so I sort of backed off for a long time until um, David Lifton got me more involved again. Who do you? Uh, I, I hate to ask this question because, like, who do you think killed Kennedy? But who do you think was? Do you think there's a Secret Service member up there? Who do you think was uh, responsible for firing? I believe a second shot, a hundred percent. I believe a front shot. Um, I'm just curious who you might think it would be, which because well, I always I should point to the. I, I don't personally believe because of what I found out, and again, it isn't because I'm some genius researcher. The the single biggest piece of where I'm at with this came by accident, purely by accident because of my relationship with Marguerite Oswald. Um, it was published in a newspaper. The guy who came to me, Dick Margison, who was also investigated, like I said, by the FBI, CIA, Secret Service, and the Warren Commission investigators, um, that was purely accidental. If he hadn't seen that article, I may never, never have found him, or he may never have found me, I should say. So as a result, um, that led from one thing to the next. The two people involved with him when he was in the CIA doing electrical surveillance um, were a guy by the name of Lauren Hall and Larry Howard. And he was like brothers with Larry Howard. And those two guys um, were working on Operation Mongoose together with him. And then Robert Kennedy terminated Mongoose. So Dick Margison turned to Larry and said, what are you going to do now that the quote-unquote war is over? And he said, we're going to do something so huge that the United States of America is going to be forced to back another invasion of Cuba. Within months, Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. Now, he ran, Dick Margeson ran, and I mean, he lived from one state to the next, to the next, to the next, hiding out from Larry Howard, uh, primarily, as, as well as Lone Hall. But 
Baxter Ward, who again was an, the West Coast director of ABC News at one time, and then an LA County supervisor, went back to ABC on the West Coast in Burbank following his um, stint as an LA County supervisor to do commentaries. I walked in the house one day after work, and he was doing a commentary on KBC in Los Angeles, and he mentioned the word rifle. So I immediately focused on that, that interview, that uh, commentary. He discussed a rifle that he'd been told was found in Daly Plaza behind the stockade fence the day after the assassination by the FBI. That rifle had fingerprints that belonged to a partner in a private detective agency in Los Angeles. And that, that uh, detective agency also owned a pawn shop on the first floor in that same building. Well, one of the partners, a guy by the name of Hapcock, his fingerprints were all over the inside of that rifle. So the FBI, you know, you, you, you own a private detective agency, you have fingerprint, your fingerprint. So they went out, he went out to Los Angeles, interviewed the guy and asked him why his fingerprints were all over the inside of the rifle. He says, well, these two guys pawned the rifle in a set of golf clubs and I just took the um, rifle apart, cleaned it a few times, put it back together and I was just a gun enthusiast. So he had left fingerprints on the inside. So what happened was um, I called Baxter Ward and told him a little bit, just enough to get his interest generated. He asked me to bring Margeson to Los Angeles from Orange County, and we went to Burbank. Met in his office, he locked the office door, and Dick Margeson told the story how he worked with Larry Howard and Warren Hall. And then, uh, following that, we went back a couple more times. He asked for their specific names. Up until this, up until this point, Dick Marchison hadn't mentioned who they were. So Baxter, he said, who are these guys? So he said, Lauren Hall and Larry Howard. Baxter Ward opened his desk after unlocking it, handed both of us a copy of affidavits by Hathcock and his partner, signed affidavits, showing that the two guys that pawned a rifle instead of golf club, that same rifle that was found in Daly Plaza the day after the assassination, were Lauren Hall and Larry Howard. So at that point, um, Dick Margeson said, well, what about the, the Rambler station wagon that everybody talks about that the police officers saw leaving the scene uh, of the shooting uh, in Dallas? So Dick Margeson gave the, the license plate of Larry Howard's mother's Rambler station wagon. Baxter Ward checked it out. He never would, never would confirm, but he called me three weeks later because he had, he had friends high up in the California DMV. Um, instead, called me up three weeks later and said, bring Dick up with you. So we went up again and he said, I'm going to do one more thing, and then I'm done with this myself. I don't want any more to do with this. Uh, so whatever he found out through his friend at the DMV, he wanted no more part of this. He said, I, I said, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to this, going with this to Ed Meese, who is Ronald Reagan's attorney general, attorney general of the United States. 
So a couple of weeks later, he comes back, calls me up, ring Dick up, ring Dick up. He locks the door. We sit down. He's, I said, okay, what, what's the deal? And he said that Edme said he wouldn't touch this with a 10-foot pole. Too many people are already dead. They've been involved in this case. I'm not getting involved. That was it. So when Ed Meese, the Attorney General of the United States, said he's done, I'm done. So for the longest time, I stayed out of it. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I, I missed conversations with Marguerite, and uh, and I never really could put it all to rest. You know, I had such a, a long history of being involved in it, directly, indirectly. Um, I've been followed from her house a few times, Marguerite's house. It's, you know, if I'm in my early 20s and being followed from from her house to my hotel room, hearing people pacing back and forth in front of my hotel. Uh, uh, Were you hotel followed room. by reporters or cops? No, or? I don't know who it was. All you, know, you, hear, you can hear people out there. You say, who's out there? And then all of a sudden it's quiet. You get back into the bed and all of a sudden you hear people walking back and forth again. So, and then one time I left Marguerite's house in Fort Worth and I heard an engine down the street and I'm in a rental car. So I get in my car and I start driving down the street and that car pulls out. I can hear it, but the lights aren't on. And I get to the Fort Worth Turnpike and then the lights come on on the car behind me. I get on the turnpike, off the turnpike, on the turnpike, off the turnpike, and they do the same thing. So, I mean, I wound up having to race around the corner, almost crash the car at 90 miles an hour trying to get off the turnpike. And they couldn't catch up with me and make that turn and wound up getting away. But I don't know who they were. Um, it, it, you know, again, I'm maybe 22 years old, 23 years old. Um, pretty scary stuff for me. Um, so anyway, it, it's been a lifelong thing. I've never been able to completely put it down. Um, I guess my attitude is just that if, if you can assassinate the president of the United States in broad daylight in a major city in this country and get away with it, what can they do to the rest of us? And it's deal on that. Um, I got to ask, I don't know if you asked her this, um, it's about the Adolphus hotel. Uh, a reporter had went there and got Marina, the kids, and Margaret, um, and had like interviewed them. I don't know if you've ever come across across that before, but I've seen that doc a document like that twice, where just a, a life reporter, Times Magazine reporter, had got like went picked them up and brought them to the Adolphus Hotel, which I was like, why is a reporter doing this extra mile work? Yeah, you know, uh, there's been controversy over that. Um, you know, I kind of left it alone. Um, she, when I asked Marguerite about it, she never really said anything. Initially, she thought maybe, and 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 I think this is what one of the things that caused her to develop this, you know, back off kind of uh, attitude about being mistreated and taken advantage of. But she initially thought that you know this person was being nice, you know, was on their side and. And she developed over the course of the next few years um, a very um, on guard position with anybody uh, that discussed the case. 
So I left it alone. Um, you know, when she would, like I said before, when she would bring something up, if she would push the issue herself, then I would I'd get in more detailed uh, conversation with her. But I found her to be very um, close guarded. She held her cards close to her vest until she became completely comfortable with me. Um, but even then, um, you know, I visited her numerous times. And, uh, and, but I think there was still a piece of her that was always on guard. Um, not necessarily to me specifically, but just people in general. Um, you know, when you're painted to be a, uh, just a complete opposite of what you really truly are uh, and taken advantage of, of by every single reporter or writer, uh, newscaster, you know, you, you develop this on guard attitude. When did she pass? It was in early 1981, January, February of 1981. Was that before or after Oswald was dug up the second time? Or dug up? Um, you know, um, I know he dug up the first time, and that really bothered her. But uh, to tell you the truth, I can't recall if it was after the second time. What about yeah, the first time? As a matter of fact, I remember one of the things that upset her was um, the fact that um, somebody stole Lee's uh, grave marker. And that really bothered her. Um, so when I first went with her to Lee's cemetery uh, place, you know, there was just one that said just Oswald on it, and that was it. Um, but I heard years later somebody sold it, or I didn't pay much attention to the details, but that was horrific for her, really brought her to tears. Did she ever keep hope that the truth would be revealed about what's going on with Lee Harvey Oswald? I'm sorry, say that again? Did she ever keep hope that, that there was going to be the truth coming out about Lee Harvey Oswald? You know, did something... Yeah, she, she never gave up. I mean, she'd get frustrated. Like I said, during the House the Select Committee hearings, she'd call me one day and she'd be really happy at what was um, presented. And then another day she would be really upset and say, this is not the truth. I've got proof of this. This is not the truth. Um, you know, they're after my son and they're not going to let him clear his name. But on the other hand, one of the things, by the way, was when the acoustics people went down there and I was in Dallas um, and they reenacted the shooting with the microphones along the motorcade route. And the two guys that testified before, uh, before the House Select Committee initially said there was a 50-50 chance that one of the shots came from behind the stockade fence atop the grassy knoll. So they were pressured uh, by the people who wanted to keep the same narrative that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin, was the lone assassin. So they went back and further analyzed their data. And then they came back, and I think the committee expected to hear them say, well, you know, it could have been, it couldn't have been, you know, it, we're not positive. But instead, they said, no, it's a 95% or better possibility that a fourth shot came from behind that stockade fence. And the whole room erupted with all the reporters and television cameras. I mean, it was, and she was 
you know, she was uh, obviously pleased by that because uh, it at least would prove that um, it wasn't just Lee, even if Lee was involved. And, um, you know, the, I told her one time that even if Lee had been the assassin and the lone assassin, the way you've been treated is is uh, horrible. It's horrific. I mean, uh, that you know, I'm sure Charles Manson's parents shouldn't be held accountable for Charles Manson's behavior. So why would Marguerite Oswald or Marina uh, Oswald um, be held accountable for Lee's actions, even if he did assassinate President Kennedy? So it's just it, it's it's. Um, I'm still hopeful that someday the truth will come out. I I don't have any false hopes. I mean, I really don't. It won't think, be in your lifetime and it won't be in my lifetime. I hate to I say it. I don't believe it will. Uh, and, you know, Trump, President Trump authorized the release of more information. But why would you, if there's nothing to hide, why would you make the archives uh, blocked from releasing certain information if in fact there's nothing to hide you know for years and years and years it doesn't make sense um you can say that there's you know that people's reputations might be harmed well so what so what you're talking about the assassination of a president of the united states who's going to care about their feelings versus finding the truth about who really assassinated President Kennedy. What, what's more paramount than that? Certainly not their reputation. It's called so, national security is what they yeah, call it. Yeah, national security, my butt. Excuse <laughs> me. Excuse my language. But, I mean, it's all, it's the narrative they want to keep. I mean, even after the acoustics people uh, testified on their findings, it was hushed up after that. Some phony uh, investigation by the FBI afterward. I mean, they didn't change the narrative. And they weren't going to. And so the public has never been told the entire truth. Uh, it hasn't been confirmed, uh, and it's certainly not going to be confirmed by the FBI. Well, John, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show, man. Um, I'm going to have to have you back on to talk about some of the other subjects you mentioned in the beginning. But um, where can people find your links, man? Do you have a website, any social links? Um, well, they can find my email is J D is in David Mancino, M-A-N-C-I-N-O at yahoo.com. Um, I have my own business, like I said, private security business. So I don't give that email address out, but, um, but people can contact me through, e contact me through email. Um, you know, I get literally last weekend in two days, I got 833 emails. It drives me out of my mind. But maybe stop giving your email out there. <laughs> so maybe stop giving your email out there. I would get yeah. like a, a private messenger or something like that. Well, I always get scary with emails. Yeah, I might have to do that. But and I I hope people respect uh, the privacy and will only contact me uh, with something serious as opposed to just gabber and stuff. <laughs> you know, I, I it's, um, you know, even when I unsubscribe to some of these things they still send them they never let you unsubscribe it's all no, they no it's a it's a joke they know the federal government's not going to enforce 
the uh, the issue. You know, these companies set up uh, they set up reserve accounts in case they're sued, and they just keep doing it. <laughs> Marketing people primarily, but you know, um, if somebody's serious and they want to talk, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do so. I, I, you know, like I said, my primary goal is to. Well, in the words of Margaret Oswald, clearly the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. And not just that, that's A. B is to find out, without a doubt, who actually did it. I mean, I, I'm i 99.9% .9 sure I know who fired the bullets uh, that killed Kennedy, at least fired the one from the front that, that hit Kennedy in the throat and hit him in the head. So, um, and by the way, the one in the hit... President Kennedy in the back, the Dallas doctors never knew he had a wound in his back because they never turned him over. The Bethesda doctors who performed the autopsy, they're the ones that found the bullet in the back, bullet wound in the back, and it went in less than finger length, finger length deep. So less than finger length deep doesn't add up to being a single bullet theory that went through Kennedy's back, which was six inches below the shoulder and just to the right of the spinal column, came out the throat. And then went on to do all the damage to Governor Conley. What a farce. I mean, that narrative is such a farce. They must think the public is stupid. Well, and, Alan and Dulles is like I said, Dr. Alan... McClellan swore uh, that he would never change his testimony that Kennedy was hit in the throat by the from the front. It was an entrance wound. Alan Dulles was the one that said the public doesn't read anyway. So yeah. Well, Alan Dulles. If you remember, Alan Dulles is the same Alan Dulles that never told Kennedy until, what, a week or two before the Bay of Pigs, about the Bay of Pigs? And got because, fired. again, Kennedy wasn't supposed to be elected. So Johnson, I mean, excuse me, uh, Nixon and Eisenhower had planned the Bay of Pigs, not Kennedy. So he gets told at the last second, and they ask him for air naval support. And he said, no, I'm not going to give air naval support. Nobody knows the connection the true connection between the Soviet Union and Cuba. I'm not going to put the entire United States uh, in line for a possible nuclear war over a tiny island of Cuba. No way. So so Kennedy, after it failed, he bring, brings Alan Dulles into his office and said, you know, I'm going on national television tonight and I'm going to take full responsibility for this failed effort. But you are fired. So that's the same Alan Dulles that is appointed to the Warren Commission. Give me a break. Um, John, thank you again for giving me the time, man. I'm going to um, link your links in the description. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. Please of do. Podcast. Yeah, I'd love to be able to watch it. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for next episode.